quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, So There I Was, which is how all great aviation tales begin. This is episode 86. We're going to call this the best of show. First, we'd like to thank all those who are currently serving and all veterans and their families who are separated from each other during the holidays. It's a particular difficult time of year to be apart, and we we all know that. So your sacrifice and your service is deeply appreciated by us. So thank you. It is indeed. So thank you, and God bless you, and Merry Christmas. We'd also like to thank all of those who have sponsored our show over this year. Factor, HelloFresh, Babel, Robin's Bird Brain Designs. But those aren't the only ones that have contributed to our show financially. Looking at our show's path, we're really thankful for all of you who have shown your support. Every contribution has helped us to grow. And you've not only given us money, but you've believed in what we're doing. And your trust has pushed us to do better. So a big thank you to all of you for being with us on this journey. Your support means a lot, and we're very grateful. First of all, I'd like to thank those who have gone to our website and given direct donations. So Steve Bates contributes $5 a month. Master. And he does that in honor of First Lieutenant Steve Bates, his son, and in honor of his late father, Master Sergeant Bates, United States Air Force. We've gotten a direct contribution from David Olson of $50, a direct contribution from Michelle Langseth of $50, a contribution of $50 from Chris Adams. He was our air cav guy who tangled with a moose. <laughs> a few shows back. And just this week, we got a $100 contribution from Jeff Cross. But that's not all. Patreon. So there I was at US slash Patreon. We've got dozens of supporters there, and it's truly appreciated. I'd like to start by thanking uh, Statman. And Statman, I apologize for not knowing your name, but that's all you've ever given us. He contributes $5 a month, as does John B. Hall, Sticks. A.E. Schmidt, Hocktard, has given to the show. Steve Coach Ditto, Patrick Miller, Eric Fletcher, Peter Duncan, a.k.a. Don't it. Thank you. Peter Simon, Jonathan Knuckles. Call sign dragger. <laughs> Scott Walsh, Vapor, Justin Lundberg-Neff, Scott Southard, Chuck Thompson, Chris Blaine, Bill Wilson. That's double L from double Nowhere L. to Go But Up. Mike Price. Cal Stewart, Scott Christensen, Wayne Batzer, Earl McCoy, Peter Robinson. And those are all our monthly pilot contributors at $5 a month. And they've been regular contributors. So they've given a lot more than $5. And that's deeply appreciated. Stephen Blunk is the first in our section lead who gives $10 a month. Patrick McLight, Roger Valstorff. Roger is actually, I'm sorry, I want to start off. He's our, one of our division leaders. They, they contribute, these folks contribute $15 a month to the show. So thank you, Roger Volstorf. Pedactor. And then of course, Strecken, aka Stretch, our, uh, <laughs> our pilot from Dubai. Uh, Marcus Ponte, and you may remember him, his son, Sebi, Sebastian, got a ride to school in a helicopter on his ninth birthday. That's a cool birthday gift. That's a, that's huge. Yeah. And now here are some people who are known as tanker aircraft commanders. So Keith Gallagher, Yogi from Happy Birthday Yogi. Cale Heckerson, who is an actual KC-130 
Tanker Aircraft Commander in the United States Marine Corps. Cale, thank you very much. I believe it's KJ is his call sign. Ben Lawman Hancock. You may remember that name from somewhere along the line in our show. I don't know, Fig, does that ring a bell? Lawman? Yeah, sounds familiar. Yeah, Yeah. double double tanker aircraft commander. Several shows with Lawman. Boy, is that fun. Hope he comes back soon. Sal Marinello, another fun show. Double tanker aircraft commander. And then as of the recording of this intro, none other than Jason Chucker Spears is our quadruple tanker aircraft commander. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. A tanker aircraft commander is someone who donates $200 to the show. So thank you to all of you who have stepped up and done that. That has made a huge difference in our ability to go forward. But Chucker didn't stop there. He came on the show a few weeks back and and gave us a great show. And he also helped us find Jungle and Hyde from uh, last week's show. Or actually, it's the show that's out right now. This show will supplant that. And he's got us lined up with a couple more folks. So we are ever so grateful to Chucker for his his contribution, both speakers, guests, and and financial. We're, We're humbled. And then I left out one... Patreon pilot contributor. But that was intentional. He was our very first Patreon pilot contributor, but he didn't stop there. He has stepped up. He's become the administrator of our Facebook group at facebook.com slash so there I was dot us. So we got a group that just cracked 400 members and growing quickly. A gent by the name of Chase Cole. Welcome, Chase. Hey, Fig Repeat. Thanks for having me. Appreciate all you guys do and Thanks to everybody on Patreon and all of our sponsors and supporters. It means a lot. Appreciate y'all. Oh, that's huge. Oh. When when people join, and by the way, we just top 400 in our Facebook group. You know, you're right there. You welcome them. You answer their questions. You get them to participate. And that's just outstanding, brother. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And you make them feel so welcome. But what's the importance of the group, Chase? Why, why is this group important to what we're doing? Well, we really want to foster a community for everyone to join and share their stories. And we we get a lot of our guests from there. So that's a, a great place for everyone to go in, get to know each other, meet some old friends, make some new friends, and, and get stories out there and come to the show. And, and the big thing is, Fig and I can't be on all the time with our travel, and, and you can't be on all the time either, but that doesn't seem to stop you. You're there to welcome everybody who comes into the group and make them feel like they're part of it and that they have something important to contribute. And they do. We want people to contribute there. So thank you very much for staying on top of that and helping that group grow and not just die on the vine. We asked Chase a big favor this week. And at first he was a little reluctant. Yeah. <laughs> because it's hard to weed out. It's like asking, hey, what what's your favorite? Which child is your favorite, right? <laughs> yeah, this week we're doing a collection of shows, which they are by no means the best of. They're just some of the greats we've had throughout the past year and a half we've been doing this show. Year and a half. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't. Without missing a week, we've been going every week for over a year and a half now. So that's pretty cool. So what are some of the the stories that that we're going to hear, Chase? We're going to start out with one from Nasty. This one's about one that I think we can all connect with. We've all been in a, a bad place before, usually unintentionally, <laughs> yeah. make a slight mistake, and we get killed by leadership. And so Nasty, who is a leader among leaders, shows genuine leadership, as always, and he, he shows 
where he could have ended someone's career, and he chose not to. And he's got a book, Learn How to Lead to Win, by Admiral Mike Manazer. That's M-A-N-A-Z-I-R. It's available on Amazon. So Learn How to Lead to Win is by Admiral Manazer. Great book. Go, is it uh, Manazer or Manazar? Well, I see that was a thing. Is when it I tomato thought, or I tomato? Tomato, tomato, right? See, I thought it was. <laughs> I always thought it was Manazir, but if you remember reading the book, Fig, how did he get his call sign? His call sign in flight school was Twa. Yeah, because it sounded Manazar Twa. Like, yeah. And yeah. some debutante gal walked in and went, "Ooh, that's nasty." <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. And it has been nasty ever since. So, yeah. <laughs> and then we have our oldest guest ever, but by all means, an amazing show. Fig and I got off the recording with this one and called each other up and went, whoa, we just struck gold, baby. <laughs> Can you believe we just talked to this person in like live? Yeah. Yeah. So, it was like it was like talking to an actual historical yeah. figure. So who, I mean, he is a historical figure. Who was that, Chase? Uh, that's that's Captain Royce Williams. He's a, a true American who had his story locked away for over fifty years. His his mission was classified. Yeah, it was fifty more plus years that he couldn't talk about it. It's like, yep. and then, but it was this year, twenty twenty three, that he got the Navy Cross for something he did seventy years ago. Wow. Yeah. Great story. And then we get into the uh, animal cruelty section of our show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we got a, a little little double tap yeah. for the animals here. We uh, start out with Gunny Sacks and uh, the water buffalo incident for uh, Tam Key when some Marines decided to kill a water buffalo, but luckily Gunny was there and he gave him two back. Right. <laughs> yeah. One, one. Oh, no, no, I'm not going to yeah. say anything else. Just tease it so at that. Good. You can't ruin it. Great story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, followed up with water buffalo we've got chemo joining us who has a terrific story about how cows do not like the speed of sound very well <laughs> their bodies don't quite handle it as good as they should a sonic boom <laughs> who, who, who knew you know who knew killing livestock was going to be a theme it just happened <laughs> <laughs> oh man and i bet we get one or two of those next week as well but gunny who had water buffalo from tam key story introduced us to a squadron mate of his who who did another an amazing heroic? Yes, and that that would be One Eye. One Eye tells a story. Who is a, a genuine American hero? He he claims it's not him; it's his crewmates, which they certainly are included. But One Eye certainly goes down in history as one of the the greatest heroes we can have. He tells a story the very first night of the Battle of Dido, and what he, his co-pilot, and his crew chief Bob Bush went through. On a medevac mission that night, it it just makes you so proud to be an American to and to call yourself a Marine, wear the same uniform these gents did. Speaking of which, we'll get into the, some of the rest of those stories as well. But I failed to mention at the beginning, as I introduced Chase, is you too were a, a Marine, and are um, we're all still Marines. But That's right. Marine. Here we yeah. go. Absolutely. Yeah. So how'd you wind up in the Marine Corps, Chase? What were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> what in the wide, wide world of sports was you thinking? Well, I always wanted to go military, and it just kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing. I always wanted to fly and just kind of decided one day, Marine Corps, my buddy joined in. So 
found myself on Yellow Footprints in Paris Island in February 2014, not to age you guys at all. From there, <laughs> thanks for that. I, you well, know, we, I, I, yeah, I'd only been out 19 years by then. <laughs> oh my gosh, from there, had 13 weeks of vacation with the Marine Corps' best, followed up with uh, In sunny South Carolina, huh? <laughs> that's right. And surprisingly, somehow it does get freezing cold in February in South Carolina, and I never thought it would, but it does. Wow. From there. Went to Marine Combat Training in uh, Camp Lejeune, Jacksonville, North Carolina. Then found myself in NAS Pensacola for avionics training, where I got to sit and watch the Blue Angels fly day in and day out for about six months while I was there. That's motivating. Absolute time of life. That's, yeah. And so what was your MOS? Avionics technician. Working all the electronics for you guys. That takes there's, brain power, th- man. It, it does. Surprisingly, it does. I'll give them that. Yeah, the, yeah. Slouches don't end up in need not apply. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, there are. There's three levels of avionics: I level, O level, and D level or depot. Okay. Uh, I got the the grace to be able to do all three of them. Okay. I was I level in the Marine Corps, which is all your in depth, you know, micro circuits, troubleshooting all your components and, and circuit boards. Okay. I got out. Went O level. Avionics, which is at the squadron. You guys are familiar with all the AVI techs there. Okay. Worked at 203 and 223 here at Cherry Point. Hey. And left there. I went civil service, and now I'm a federal employee here at FRC, Fleet Readiness Center East, at Cherry Point, work on the F-35s. Nice. Okay. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Now, how are, are you still hands-on with the avionics, or are you doing more management? What are you doing? Yep, yep, all avionics, hands-on. Okay. Very cool. So the cards come down to you. You troubleshoot the cards, and I mean, when I say cards, I'm an electronic piece of equipment, be it a for navigation or weapons delivery, that sort of thing. But you you get and there's a lot of avionics. Obviously, the F-35 is almost all avionics, surrounded by airplane skin, right? Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. It's just pretty advanced. We uh, yeah, it's for for depot. We do every electronics bit and wiring. We take a plane in. For modifications and repairs, and down to nut and bolts, we strip it down, repair what we need to, replace what we need to, put it back together, and send it back to the warfighters. Nice. Very cool. Well, thank you for doing that. Thank you for keeping those guys as ready. That's that's impressive. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm impressed. My pleasure. It's, it's, It's a blast. I love it. Well, thank you for your service, and thank you both. It's a privilege to work on this wonderful project with you guys. Merry Christmas and God bless, and, and thanks for the opportunity to do this fun thing with you. Yeah, same, same, same to you, fellas. For me, I couldn't have said it better. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it all. Absolutely. Here comes the best of. Don't sit on the ejection seat, handle. Don't, don't do it. Don't sit on the collective. At night, in the world's smallest cockpit, on the tanker, through the weather. Oh, and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that. Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Well, there I was crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun. 
so when you're the captain of a ship, you're always sleeping with one eye open anyway. And, and I got taught by Admiral Black Nathman that, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night, something probably woke you up, pull on your coveralls, go, go out to the bridge and just look at things. And, and so really? I did. Yeah. You and, got to sit you. There's a six cent. Get, get your ass out of bed and go look and, and go look. There's something okay. just go into it. You know, if there's nothing, then at least you would have walked out in the, in the middle of the night when nobody's around, like, like, like fig talking about yeah. going into seven o'clock or two in the morning or whatever it is. Go, holy go shit. The, holy shit. The old man's here. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so the one thing I did on Nimitz a lot, and I started on Sacramento was when you walked onto the bridge as the captain, the bosun, the bosun mate would announce cabs on a bridge or the quartermaster would cabs on the bridge. If I saw a change in the team, I debriefed. Uh, Wait till the watch was over, and I debriefed. And I said, you do not change your demeanor or your procedures or anything based on whether I'm on the bridge or not. You guys need to act like I'm on the bridge all the time. So I looked for that. And so, you know, I would have this thing about walking the bridge. Well, this particular, I mean, when, when you walk onto a darkened bridge in an aircraft carrier, there's a little short passageway that then opens to the broader bridge, and it's very dark. And so night, you know, if the, if the quartermaster sees you, he will say it. But the chances of him seeing you from there, especially when you don't just walk on and go, hey, boats, how's the coffee? You know, and, and then they, you know, cabs on a bridge and everything kind of sparks up. I just kind of yeah. walk and I wanted I wanted to see what was going on. I had my hands in my pockets. I still remember I get my eyes accustomed to the blackness and it's looking outside. And it's really black outside, as it always was. I look out kind of, I can see through the windows. I'm still standing back, you know, and I'm looking around and I'm kind of counting where everybody is. And there's the helm right next to me and the Lee helm. Nobody sees me there. And, and there's the, you know, the conning officer, junior officer of the deck, and they're watching through the Polaris to see where we're going. The quartermaster's over under the red light, coffee's brewing. It smells like coffee. I mean, it's just absolutely wonderful. Looking for the OD. And I realize as I look around, I turn to the left and behind my captain's chair is like a air conditioning unit against the bulkhead there. And, and there is a figure leaning against the air conditioner unit against the wall. So they're a little bit ahead of me to the left and like inches ahead of me and about, you know, a foot and a half to the left. And so I'm looking, Oh, it's, and I recognize the shape of his face. I know the guy pretty well working for a long time. And I go and stand next to him and I expect that he'll go, you know, kind of look over to see the presence and he doesn't. And so I'm like, OD. No response. OD. No response. Are you asleep? No response. Are you asleep? He wakes up. And even in the dark, I saw that guy turn about ghost white. He, <laughs> He's glowing white. <laughs> and like, you know, cat, 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 you know, and then sorry, he realized that I caught him asleep, and which is, as we relate in the book, is a UCMJ offense, a sleep on watch, you know, yeah. and the O possible for safety of the ship, you know. So anyway, nobody but us two standing there. And for some reason, well, for, I mean, because I am who I am and what I believe in, I, and I just lectured him, you know, and I said, you know, you, you, you know what you did. I forget what I said, but, but he, he was suitably chased. And I think that he didn't sleep for probably another two weeks, you know, it just didn't. <laughs> the adrenaline, the piss shot to the heart alone. <laughs> piss shot to, woke him up for probably a month. He's a very, he is a very good officer. He was an engineer officer and he did a very good job. And like I relate in the book, 14, 16 hour days and standing watch. 
you know, so there was a little bit of empathy and understanding. I certainly knew how he felt and my his professional life. And we had just, we had just frocked him to commander. And if, and if, you know, it becomes permanent after a while, if nothing happens and, and I could take that away and then also bust him, you know, take him to cast mess and basically go from commander to Lieutenant. And, and I didn't. And I said, look, you know, between you and me, this can't happen again. You know, you're one of those professional ODs I have. And if the team knows you're over here sleeping, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yes, 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 yes. So, so he continued. And at my change of command, he wrote me a special note that just thanked me for not destroying his career and his life and the whole thing. And it just, I just, for some reason, yeah. felt thing to do. So good for him. And good I did. For you. I, outstanding. That's the type of leader, right? I mean, that like I said, you lose leadership. Yeah. Well, if, is, so if somebody, so for instance, if I'd have walked over and, and if you'd have made it public though, your hands would have been more tied, right? Hands tied. Or if somebody told me and yeah. said, Hey, yeah, yeah I got to tell you, I found the officer of the deck asleep on watch. I have to do something now. The, yeah. the, the order and discipline of the unit requires me to do something. And so I would have had to, you know, and, and that came up many, 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 many times in my commanding officer tours is what to do for good order and discipline. And this particular one was my choice. And, and what, I chose so where is he now? Is, is he got stars? Did he get out? Do you know? I think he, he, I think he probably ended up getting out of the Navy. He was on a, he was on kind of a career path that probably didn't, you know, the things that he had done probably didn't get him command and, and therefore anything after command, just, just, just the way that it worked out for him. So, yeah. Um, no, I didn't, I didn't create an admiral. There are a couple of people though, that have reminded me, that that I took them to captain's mass, gave them a chance, and they became chiefs and then commissioned officers and had just retired after 20-some years. And and something I did, you know, that went their way during mass allowed them to go and succeed in the Navy. Well, there I was crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fond of all the shit I was wearing. Well, I went back and made my landing, and bad weather had moved in, a blizzard frontal system, and I was told on the landing to get a quick lunch, come back because I was going to be on the combat air patrol, which I did. Four of us briefed together, took off in miserable weather, joined up, and then climbed through the clouds to clear sky above it, 12,000 feet. And in the clouds, CIC informed us that there were a group of unknown aircraft coming from the north and for us to be heads up. You know, once coming into clear air, I saw a flight of seven in wing fingertip formation heading our way all in contrail probably 50,000 feet or maybe higher. They wow. often flew to 55,000. So they said, uh, that's your target. My uh, flight leader had a warning light in his fuel system, and so he was directed with his wingman to return to over the task force while I took the lead with the wingman that I'd never flown with before. Oh. And just my guns and gun sight and everything was ready to fight and climbed in the direction that I saw them. As they went over, say, turned back north and 
we were climbing to engage if possible, if necessary. And at 26,000 feet, they broke up in two groups and descended from the contrails, and we lost sight of them. And I reported that to the carrier, and they lost sight of them as well as they became a smaller target. So I was instructed to come back and establish a barricade between the last sighting and the task force. And so in that turn, here come four of them at my 10 o'clock position, all firing. (laughs) Oh, jeez. I wasn't given any instruction, but intuition and my job, I turned hard into him, ended up right on the tail of number four, short burst, and he started smoking and dropping. And my uh, wingman followed him on down for, I don't know why, <laughs> but he left me and I didn't um, work with them anymore. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <They were fluid. laughs> yeah, I already shot him. Don't go after him. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah. my God. So you've got, so now you're alone with uh, six, you've gotten one and there's six more in the fight. Somewhere. Yeah, that's right. That's oh right. my gosh. Oh. So I, I think if I could take what I know now and parlay that into what I think happened was that the three remaining in the division that just lost their tail end Charlie guy, pulled up abruptly and climbed smartly to 2,000 feet or so above me. And I was trailing them, but following. And as they turned to attack me, I switched my aim and tracking on the lead aircraft. And as I completed the uh, ready to attack him, they uh, that airplane was firing at me at a distance that, as far as for the weapons I had, I felt was out of range. So I just right. tracked for a while until I thought, okay, in which case I fired a brief shot and he stopped firing and turned away. And as the later on, my guess. <laughs> That this, who was the lead of all seven, probably nicked him and he didn't want to continue the attack. I switched my aim and readiness on his wingman who was heading toward me, firing. And when in range, I fired at him. He stopped, didn't maneuver anything, just slid right under my airplane. I think he was dead. Okay, I I have to ask, right right now, Captain Williams, were you were these face shots? In other words, were you shooting were you shooting at each other, going at each other, or was there turning involved? No. It was like we were just pointed at each other. That's what I thought. Holy cow. That's that's uh that's that's terrifying. Repeat. What's one? What's rule one when you're training? No right? face shots. These. Guys. Oh my god. This is. Okay, so I'm. I'm. I mean, uh, my, my feet are sweating. My palms are sweating. So you've got two uh, so of them, and you're still in a furball though with these guys. That. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah. The other three 
came in from the other side, and now instead of in formation, they were individuals. It was like our gunnery training of uh, right. one in, four off, yeah. and taking their turns. Yeah, so you were you were you were seriously maneuvering now. Yes. Biting off multiple and, attacks. And at, at what point oh, do you remember how many rounds you had on board in your gun? I think seven hundred and eighty, maybe seven hundred and eighty. Okay. Yeah. So still you've yeah, got some so left though. Because it's not, uh, it's not unlimited. It's not unlimited. Of yeah, it's not unlimited. But you weren't done with these guys yet. You've gotten two of them. Now you're one v five. What what happened next? Yes, and, and maybe only four. If I really did nick this guy, I think he stayed above the fray. He was in charge of okay. the whole thing. I don't think he ran off. But uh, according to a book that came out, written by a military historian, that. Uh, two airplanes were returning to Vladivostok, and along the way, one of them dropped. I suspect that could have been the lead and was losing fuel and just ran dry and okay. died in the ocean. Okay, wow. Do you, and I don't mean to put you on the spot. Do you remember the name of that book, or, or was it in Russian? The name of the book is called Red Devils Over the Red Yalu. Over the, yeah, okay. Written by Igor Sidov, S-E-I-D-O-V. Okay, perfect. Perfect. All right. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, that, that's my brain there talking. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> she has she has a your brain has a she wonderful voice, uh, Captain <laughs> Williams. <laughs> this book came out in what, about nineteen ninety two? Oh no. Twenty thirteen. 2013. In uh, 1992, Soviet Union broke up newspapers telling the story of this 1952 event disclosed the name of four. So I have those names, and they've been published, uh, that were shot down. There's the confirmation. Tammy feels that maybe two more could have been lost, but could well have been other communist nation personnel flying with them and they didn't have the right to publish their names. We don't okay. know. So in this fight that you're in, you shot down two airplanes. Nicked there's a third. Still, yeah, possibly nicked a third. So that means there's four making gun runs on you. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so, so. Yeah. How do you even survive this? This is amazing. So I know that eventually you got a fourth, and then at some point they decided uh, that maybe you were not the right person to be hangling with and chose the better part of valor and went home so they could live or to fight another day. Home, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I don't think no. that's the way it was. Okay, so I'm dying. Let's, let's hear it. Well, the next one that made a mistake instead of abruptly climbing and getting out of it and getting up on the perch to come back, at a level point, crossed me, and I uh, had a close-range track and fired, and it, uh, the airplane broke up. Uh, and this time back, there are fewer, but they're, they're still making runs on it, and my attention is not following 
who else is where except for the guy on my tail. And I was maneuvering to louse up his aim and survive. I came on another one, and I was dead behind him in fairly close range. And firing, he started smoking and dropping out, going low, leaving 26,000 feet. And I ran out of ammunition. And at that point, I looked around, and here's the meg on my tail. So I made a hard turn right, and uh, he got a lucky 37 millimeter into my accessory section of the engine and knocked out all my hydraulics and severed the cable to the rudder. Oh, jeez. Oh. The airplane was out of rig. At that point, I had to really use two hands on the stick oh. to do my flying. But he sucked nicely right on my tail, and I was still some distance from the clouds that were between us and the task force. But I was aimed just accidentally at the clouds, and I started dropping altitude quite steep. But I pushed the stick forward, and I pulled it back, and I just pulled a lot of Gs in both directions, or a big yo-yo. And though he just sat back there and fired and fired all the way until both of us got into the clouds, he didn't nail me. Thank goodness. Wow. That's that's so fortunate then. And so now you're trying to, now you have to make it back to the ship in a crippled bird. That's true. Yeah. Either that or the other options weren't very popular. I can't imagine wanting to bail out in that cold water. Yeah. Well, my intuition was that got an airplane and I've got an ejection seat, but I mulled it briefly and said, hey, no one's going to come to my rescue in time to save me from dying from the cold water. So obviously I stuck with it. I knew the base of the clouds were about four or 500 feet. So I just lowered myself down, heading toward the task force and checking things as I went. And as I came out underneath the clouds and leveled off, I was right near the task force. And my uh, commanding officer and his flight were just launched to come up and relieve us. And he saw that the task force, who had been at general quarters, which he was, hadn't been informed that I was friendly, so they were shooting at me. Of course they were. Oh, dear. He called the doctor off. I started to figure my next step to try to get aboard a carrier in terrible weather and a bad airplane. And seeing at what speed I could slow to and still fly, and I got down to 170 knots, and it was going to stall out of me. So I had to come in above that. Wow. That is fast. Notify the landing signal officer. And he's been ready for a tough job to get me aboard. Well, I had to wait till the aircraft that had been lined up for launch for another attack on North Korea. All the plans had changed, and they were pulling everything forward to make room for me to land on a straight deck airplane. So it was some time, and I'm... Uh, assessing myself and positioning as best I could to be the right spot when I got a Charlie. 
permission to land. And when that happened, uh, it was uh, fairly good shape behind the ship as it went into the wind. And uh, I let them know I was fast, of course. And the commanding officer said, uh, bring him any speed he wants. We had plenty of surface wind plus speed of the ship. Uh, but I couldn't line up, and I was going to cut across where there's an air and would have put me over the okay. side. The captain knew that as I got on in and pretty close. He whipped the ship around and lined it up with me, and boom, I landed in a fairly good landing. That's awesome. Wow. wow. <laughs> and so then you, you tail hooked, no barricade. Did they even have barricades then? Oh, yes. Okay. So that, that was pre-hook. Was major on a straight deck. It was more important than on an angle deck because we had all aircraft forward being armed and fueled, right. and and they're doing starting that as soon as they land. Uh, but if an airplane's coming in and has a problem, they'll probably already put the barricade up. But they had operators right there were swift. If uh, somebody was starting to skip wires or something, they would put the bar- barricade up. So that was my second defense. All right. So uh, you you uh, you said you you couldn't get any slower than 170. What what was a normal landing speed for a Panther? Uh, about 105. <laughs> oh, so so you're you're 65, 70 knots faster than you normally are. Uh, yeah. I never heard of anybody landing at oh, that speed. Oh, it's terrifying. <laughs> you think you know is the cross deck pendant going to break? Yeah. Is the hook going to hold? All that. You know. Well, and I, I've seen that happen. Boy, that is day comes whipping across. I saw a chief penny officer out there to uh, drop the, the pendant, clear the hook, and that came around and cut off both yeah. of his legs. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Dangerous place to be on a carrier deck. Oh, uh, yeah. Indeed. So. And if if my my memory's correct, because I, I uh, from my reading of your event that your aircraft was so badly battle damaged that after you got out of the airplane, they they just pushed it over. Well, we this was the last day on the line for Princeton, so we headed toward Yokosuka. It took a little time to get there, but I received orders that on arrival to report to Admiral Briscoe, the senior naval officer in the Western Pacific. And I was uh, prepared to, when we docked, I went down on the hangar deck and I saw second-class petty officer, Air Bolson, who handles these aircraft in his province, I was the hangar. And I told him who I was, and I'd like to have a last look at the airport. And he says, sorry, sir, but we pushed it over the side. Well, it turns out that that was not true. It probably wasn't true. And Admiral Shelton, who picked up, volunteered, on it started a look-see into this thing many years later, thinking that I hadn't been properly awarded. And in his study, he booked all of the data and the bureau numbers and found that it went into overhaul and was useful again in the training command. Nice. I'll be damned. That's beautiful. How about that? Because, yeah, because Wikipedia says they pushed it over, but had it had 263 holes in it. 
Yeah, that part is right. Swiss cheese of an airplane by the time you brought her back. Wow. Crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fond of all the shit I was wearing. So there came this time in in Icor in nineteen late nineteen sixty-five that some Marines had had killed a water buffalo. Uh-oh. Not knowing that water buffaloes were frequently a, one of the major assets of a little village. Water yeah. buffalo was important because because you know it pulled the plow, it gave it it the, the cows gave made milk, they gave meat. I mean it was it was a it was a very important asset. So they shot by accident. Now, one of the great images of Vietnam is a picture of a helicopter carrying a buffalo in a sling on a long cable suspended below the helicopter and the water buffalo is hanging here looking absolutely helpless, right? You're going to about to hear the rest of the story, right? (laughs) Paul Harvey, good day, the rest of the story. (laughs) So when the, the Marines accidentally killed this water buffalo, a frag came down to 362 saying, We've got to replace the water buffalo. It'll be a really good way of helping the hearts and minds get one. So, ugly angels, find a water buffalo and give it back to the village of Tamke. <laughs> okay. Who knows nice. anything about water buffalo? Who knows cattle? Who knows? Oh, Captain Cook. He knows. He knows all that stuff. He's a cowboy. So, they go into the village and they bought a bullock water buffalo. and. <laughs> put a rope around its neck and get a bucket full of rice and dangle the, the rice bucket in front, dangle the rice bucket in front of the buffalo and it follows him in. They build a little ramp up to the H-34 <laughs> and the water buffalo walks up the ramp and circles and lies down right next to the crew chief seat. Nice. falls asleep. And they say, okay, well, we're going to give it back to the, to the Unbelievable. village of Tam King. Fly up to Tamki. I think one of the photographs I sent to repeat yeah. was an aerial view of the town square of Tamki. Okay. I'll um, look for that then. Because what I do for the listeners, if if you're listening to this on a podcatcher like podcasts, or I don't know if it's podcast or podcaster in iOS on your iPhone or iPad. I embed photos that each of the guests send to us within chapters of the podcast as it goes out. So as it switches chapters, you should see some different photos. And I'll try and put the water buffalo uh, or the, the town of Tamkey yep. with the water buffalo story in there. If and I can find it. Yeah. Yeah. So so they take off. They're going to render unto Tamkey what Tamkey deserves. They're going to give them water buffalo back. Fly down there. Now, Tam Key, for those of you who don't have an image of it, is one of those beautiful old French colonial villages that the French had built up. It had colonial white stucco town hall with a long, long, long greenway 
in front of it with beautiful elm trees subsequently cut down. And it was really beautiful. So Roger's making his approach in here and he's coming down. And before he makes the approach on his way up there, the, they get up to 2,500 feet where the air is cooler and the water buffalo wakes up. And the water buffalo looks around and says, oh, shit, this isn't right, and doesn't like it. So he starts walking forward, and the center of gravity Commit suicide? Goes, goes way, way, way wow. forward, and the aircraft starts going like this. And they say, oh, get him back, get him back, get him back. Get him back. Oh, get that steam. under control. <laughs> and he starts going oh, no. And... Now they're they're yep. they're in extremists at this point. <laughs> Get that fucking animal under control, and and it starts oh, no. coming forward, and then <laughs> we we thought some uh. lead injection was required, sir. Shot the thing right between the eyes. <laughs> now, as Rogers making now now you're now down to water buffalo, <laughs> there, and he sees lined up in in this beautiful. Town Square, the town fathers of Tam Ki, South Vietnam, with top hats and tails, cutaways, and a little oh brass God. band displayed. And Roger, what Roger said to himself at that point was, Oh, you got to be shitting me. Oh, you got to be shitting me. <laughs> Lands in front of him, kicks the water buffalo out, and takes off and gets back home. I hope I hope we 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 dodged a bullet on that one. Next day, in the ready room. Wow! First sergeant comes down and says, "Is there first lieutenant Cook in the ready room?" Yeah, that'd be me. First sergeant, what can I do for you? <laughs> Group commander would like to see you, sir. Come with me, please. Can I be up after? No, sir. Come with me now, please. So he gets marched up to the group commander's office, and the bird colonel is there. And who else is there? But there are four of the founding fathers of Tam Key in their cop hats and cutaways and all that. And the colonel says, First Lieutenant oh, no. Cook, I think Mr. Nguyen Kao Key would like to speak to you. He looks at him, comes to attention, and the mayor says, Is very kind of American Marines to replace town water buffalo that was accidentally killed by American Marines, village of Tam Ki, had hoped very sincerely to have a living water <laughs> buffalo to replace formerly living water <laughs> buffalo. And Roger sees what's going on, and, and he breaks the position and says, a living water buffalo? Shit, Colonel, we must have misunderstood. We can do that. We'll get him. We'll get him a living water bubble. We could probably do that today or tomorrow. And that's when they learned carry it externally so it can't screw oh, up course. the gravity of the aircraft. <laughs> killed a cow so oh jesus I did. I did. <laughs> so this this is back in the day when men were men and the word the bottle to throttle rule was advisory in nature no drinking within 50 feet right yeah no right. smoking okay. within 24 hours no drinking within 50 feet so when i first checked into my squadron vf-31 one of the best fighter squads in the, in, in the nation uh we had 
an event up in Fallon, Nevada. And I was a NAVCAD, as you know. So I checked in. I was an Ensign JG. I don't even know. I think I made lieutenant before I checked out. I'm not sure. <laughs> Either way, I'm the junior kid. And so yeah, right. if you remember Fallon with all of the things that we did out there, this is some of the best flying on the planet. But other Absolutely. than that, huh. Absolutely. We went up there for S Sparfs, air to ground, this, that, and the other. Tomcats are, Tomcats are dropping bombs, et cetera, et cetera. We have a great time. But the typical all officer meetings that we've had that would typically be in a ready room when in Fallon would be at Salt Wells or the Mustang Ranch because they had a very big ready room type of place with beer that was very, very inexpensive and it was cheap beer. So were the skippers. Very cheap. Hey, Salt Wells, AOM, 1400, whatever. And we we go there. This is before Salt Wells. I think Salt Wells is no longer. I think it burnt to the ground and it is no longer there. Last I checked. uh, I think it was like four or five double wides connected behind barbed wire fencing. And yeah, God, that's my first time there. And you kind it's of pretty fan dancy. Yeah. And it goes, and you open the door and you're like, is this to keep us in out? This is kind of scary. I don't know. We get to the bar and mama son's there and the, the squatter shows up and Hey, you can't beat $1 pitchers at a pool no. table. So no, you can't, you can't. So we have our AOM there. And as we do this, we, by the way, are talking about the next day's events and skipper stops. Possum looks at me and says, hey, Kimo, you got the skipper watch. And I was like, Roger that. Don't we have a six? Shut up. You got the skipper watch. Make sure that we're back for the brief at 6 a.m. I'm like, yeah, hey, Roger that, sir. Well, we proceed to get utterly shithoused at this place. (laughs) I have a great time. We stop at, remember the uh, casino that had like five cent craps? I'll get it in a second. It was like, it's not there anymore. But we went there. I think that's the one that Ivan Putsky broke a toilet at. I could be wrong. Oh my gosh, I think you're right. <laughs> we had a uh, squadron mate, Ivan, Ivan Putsky was his alter ego, and yeah. he was standing on a toilet in the casino one night, and uh, it might have cracked literally in half. <laughs> it was time to bug out after that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so it, you get the story. Basically, we get back to the base at the queue at about 2 a.m. for a 6 a.m. brief. It's a four-plane division, four-ship, whatever you want to call it, ingress, opposed, low-level route, up north, back down south into Bravo 17 for a live drop of Mark 82s. Nothing too big, but we all had a bunch of Mark 82s, and we're going to do this thing and and go. So we have this whole mission planned. Luckily, we planned it the day before. And we wake up, and we're we're walking to the jets, and all of us are just in the standard mental state of preparedness. We start up, we go, and we had, luckily, uh, Link 16, which is uh, JTID's very uh, secure comms. So we had a little thing going. And so everything is cool. And then we all feel like shit and we take off. And the route, if you can picture on a map, Fallon, Nevada, just go east for X amount of miles, go north for a ton, back over and then back down. We're going back into Bravo 17 to drop a bunch of bombs. And the time on target is this, X, whatever it is. So we're taking off. And in the Tomcat, it was just like the Viper where you can kind of go, all right, so I'm going this fast. Here's my fuel flow. You're going to make it to this waypoint based on your routing at this time. And I've, I'm looking, and I'm I'm dash three on this battle box formation, which is basically one, two on the top forwards, and three and four in the back portion of a of a box pat of a box formation going into the route. So I kind of look at my stuff. And I'm like, hey, one, I can't remember his call sign, Sluggo. Hey, confirm time on target. And it's like, wow, it's X. And I'm looking at it going. Dude, we're like five minutes late. This is because we're just, we're totally not where we need to be. And I'm like, well, one, we are freaking late, dude. And all of a sudden he looks at me and he's like, no, we're, 
Y'all, you hear him, he's like, no, we're not. We're... Tomcat's gate. Gate means afterburner, which means let's go because we're late. So he advises <laughs> all four ships, hey, Tomcat's gate. So we launch. I was dash two. That's right. Because my buddy's behind me, so to speak. And he is looking at my airplane about a mile back and said, dude, the coolest thing I ever saw was an F-14D GE motor going to full afterburner because the glow was so amazing. Even at just inside of a mile, it was crazy. But So we just start going and we realize that we can't do this entire route and make the time on target. There's just no way we're going to do it. So as you know, ACMI pods are the tax range. Yes. We have the ability to make sure we're, trans- we're emitting or not. So okay. we make a great call, which I think to this day is Stands to record as being a great call for improvising, adapting, and overcoming. Our lead goes, well, we're not going to go that far. Gents, circuit breakers off. Hook left. We're going through that fucking valley right there. And it's about halfway <laughs> through the entire route. So we basically cut the route in half, and we come back around, which is fine. So we go there. We meet up with the opposed adversaries at the time that didn't realize where we were. So we destroy them, and we get back on a route with about plus or minus a minute now. So we're like looking good, but we're still about a minute to go. So we're like, dude, Tomcat's gate. So I just, we're about 500 feet, and this the the rules of supersonic flying and Fallon is weird because it's like 11,000 MSL is your floor for supersonic flight. Okay, that's above but mean sea level. Yep. Yeah, but a mean sea level. But you don't realize that there's terrain that kind of that's that doesn't adhere to that. So there right. there are points where you shouldn't be supersonic at 11,000 feet. That being said, it's the first place that I actually got to see on my HUD 910. Knots at 500 feet. Oh, <laughs> if ground speed. Uh, oh, we so we gotta make time on target. So, and I've never experienced we're at 500 feet. So, the, just the the tunnel vision you have of just going so fast. Oh yeah, altitude is just amazing. So, I'm looking at my wingman. I'm looking at the HUD. I tell my backseat, I'm like, dude, this is kind of cool. He's like, what's up? He's like, I can barely see anything. It's kind of <laughs> we're going so goddamn fast. And then I realized. <laughs> we're, about, we're a few miles to go. We're catching up to time on target. We're going to make this thing great. And all of a sudden, as I, I kind of look over, look forward, I see this little green speck go to green square and gone with probably within a half a second. I'm like, oh, was that? A, was that, that somebody live there? I don't know. I don't, I don't, whatever. I don't know. So let's keep going. So we go <laughs> and we, we pop over and we, we drop our bombs, shack attack. We're within 30 seconds, so we're like, well, that was pretty good considering five minutes. Yes. Ooh, so we're very happy. We land, and we're supposed to debrief at the, the Nautic Commander's headquarters or NSOC or I can't, Strike back in the day, you know? Yeah. Big right. auditorium. Tax is playing. And there are they're not flag level, but I, I almost flag level people running around. What the shit? How could this fucking happen? I can't believe we need to find out where these people were. Not, and we're walking and going, yeah, right. yes, right. It's not a problem. No. So we we sit down in the big briefing room, and our skipper comes out and he goes, "I need to know exactly where you were for the routing." It's like, "Well, skipper, you got our brief. Here's our route A through whatever." <laughs> okay, great. So here, the, here's the funny part: with your tax pods circuit breakers pulled, obviously there's no emission, so they only <laughs> can see us on their their ATC radar sweep or whatever, which is right. once every. 30 seconds. I don't remember what it was. It was pretty slow back then. So when you're going 910 knots ground speed, (laughs) you get a blip on one part of the earth. And the next thing you know, there's like another blip, you know, way far from that first blip. So there was no ability to really correlate where we are. Thank God. Basically, we had this report going and there were pictures shortly after that little square that I flew over at 910 knots ground speed, which is about 1.6 Mach 
uh, in a Tomcat at about 500 feet. Oh, shit. You rocking. <laughs> With this bomb on board. Yeah, there's this picture to this day, and, and my wife still has it, and I'll tell you why my wife still has it, but it's a single-wide trailer that is literally kind of off kilter just a little bit. Every window is blown out, and every domestic animal, including this cow, is on its side, with its legs out. I mean, probably from a heart attack. I don't know, but oh, everything is dead in front. The, the trailer is a mess, but allegedly, we don't know to this day necessarily who did this. Allegedly. Allegedly. So luckily, the legal officer of our squadron was able to help make that all go away. Roll forward about three months. My wife's a nurse at the hospital in Fallon, and she's working with this woman, and something happens that brings up Navy pilots, and all of a sudden, she's like, oh, that damn Navy pilots. I hate those guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> and my wife is like, dear God, what's going on? She's like, they killed my cow. <laughs> and my wife is like, this wasn't, what? you know, this day and around this time, was it? Yeah, how'd you know? I was just guessing, you know, so she called me, hey, remember that cow you killed? Yeah, it's fucked. I'm working with the owner of that dead cow. Oh, oh. I was like, maybe it's all good that they paid her off. You know, she got another cow. She was still very upset. Well, yeah. I never thought I'd, I mean, I've I've dropped some bombs in the desert, but I've never said I've been able to kill cattle with with a tomcat and and a a pest away. And and now you have. And now I have. And so, oh, and, and, and in, a, in a way, I, I feel like the, the, the what is it the the right of the, the the time between accident and event to now is, is statute of limitations is going. Oh, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Statute of limitations <laughs> is over. I think we're good. So I'm I'm in full admission mode with you guys right now. So. But you became the hammer of God. <laughs> you you were the hammer of God for that <laughs> that day <laughs> for that cow's purposes. Crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun of all the shit I was wearing. My understanding is you were had the night medevac emergency call out. Yeah, we were off the coast on the Iwo Jima, just uh, below the DMZ, the, the military okay. zone. I was it was my turn in the, in the in the basket, and I got a call for a night medevac. Second Battalion, Fourth Marines were at Daido, which was about twenty miles inland. Just below the DMZ. Okay. Oh. Are you sitting at attention, Fig? I'm at attention. <laughs> Are ringing. you at attention? I'm at attention. <laughs> that is a great ringtone. You should see her, my wife's ringtone. Oh, Hail there to you the go. chief. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you say you were on the uh, Iwo Jima Iwo. at the time that uh, you were doing the night Jima. medevac? Okay. Yeah. All right. right. So, yeah. So, you were there. Right. and that. So, I got the call to do the night, okay. night medevac, and I was... Uh, the lead pilot, flight of two, Robbie Robinson was my wingman. And we got a call that they had five seriously wounded medevacs, mm-hmm. Marines, that had to get had to get out as life and death. Normally, in the middle of the night, you really didn't take medevacs unless it was really an emergency, if it could wait. But they had to get out. So we he- headed inland. And in those days, you didn't have GPS or anything. It was all distance and direction off off of the the signal from the ship okay so we flew inland and as i approached where i thought the site was i told him to to uh, i i I called for for situation they said that they had broken 
action just shortly before they didn't, they didn't know how close the uh, the enemy still was. I told them to identify the zone and put a strobe light where they wanted my right wheel to right. land. Okay. This way I, I would come on, land on the strobe light and cover it. And then they'd know where to load, you know, stage the medevacs to loading. Right. So I, I came in and I landed, no problems. And they started loading the, loading the medevacs. And meanwhile, my wingman was circling overhead. As soon as they started loading the medevacs, all hell broke loose. Mm-hmm. We got, we received fire from 360 degrees all around. Robbie said that it looked like the spokes of a wheel and I was in the middle. <sighs> He never expected me to come out of that zone. There's so much fire coming in. I, while they were loading the medevacs, I got hit, caught shrapnel in both my eyes. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize what it was because I, I didn't feel any pain. I must have been in shock. And I never felt any pain the whole time. <clears throat> but I couldn't see. And I tried to wipe my eyes, and I, and I couldn't clear them. So I... I called my co-pilot on the ICS, and he didn't answer me. So I reached over to get his attention, and he was slumped wow. over. So I, he, he had gotten hit. So I called down to my, my crew chief, Bob Bush, and I said, Bob, I can't, I can't see, and Larry's hit. We can't stay here. We're taking too much fire. We have to get out. You're going to have to talk me out. And he, he said, okay, captain. He says, and, and he was, he was loading, he was loading the medevacs as all this took place. He was returning fire, loading the medevacs. And he started giving me directions and he was also wounded. He got shot in the ass for the second time. Cause he had and, nothing else going on. Just, and, you know, just loading, yeah. Yeah. dealing with wounds. Right. Let me talk the captain out of here while we're at it. Yeah, and he's a story unto himself. I'll get yeah. into that in a minute. So I started adding power, and this is where all these prior experiences come together. I started adding power, and I took my K-bar. At, I don't know why, but I took my K-bar out, and I smashed some of the gauges so I could feel the instruments. And as I was adding power, I felt that I had enough power because I could hear and feel the vibrations, and I knew what the aircraft was doing, and I couldn't lift off. Bob says, we can't get off the ground. You, they loaded eight medevacs instead of five. You're going to have to roll it. Just an extra 600 pounds. So, so <laughs> Yeah. So I started rolling the aircraft forward, and as we picked up speed, he kept, you know, keep, keep it straight, keep it straight. We we bounced through a dry riverbed <laughs> until we gained enough speed to, to get airborne. And once once we were airborne, my wingman Robbie came down, got in between me and where most of the fire was coming from, acted as a shield and suppressed fire. And he took over and he told me everything that he was doing, you know, to mm-hmm. talk me out ten miles south to the mouth of the Coavia River where we landed on at the uh, there was a CB base there at the at the mouth of the Coavia River we landed on the ramp which act, coincidentally happened to be the same spot that Gunny landed on on his last landing yeah, in Vietnam right. 
I remember that story. <laughs> yeah. 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 <sighs> And in 2011, Gunny and I went back to Vietnam, and we went back to that spot. Does it look any bigger than it did then? Because, of course, you you, you uh, will see it that yeah. night, obviously. But yeah, holy yeah. cow! Yeah, yeah. We we also went back to the spot where I got hit at Daido, and and with with a a bunch of guys from two four, <clears throat> and. We're standing in the middle of the field where this all took place, and this guy walks out from a distant hut. And he wanted to know what we were doing in his field, and an interpreter told him what we were doing, and he says, I was there that night. Wow. And and we became friends on Facebook. We still communicate on Facebook. I'll be darned. He- he was yeah, there yeah. as a, as the enemy, as the uh, as the opposing force. Well, he was he was a lot younger yeah. then, so it was his family. I guess worked that that oh, field. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 So and he remembered that quite distinctly. And then my wingman came down and picked me up, and they sent out the helicopters to pick up everybody else. They brought me out to the hospital ship, and I I was on the operating table within the hour after I was hit. I spent uh, seven days on a hospital ship. The, the the flight surgeon that operated on me saved the sight in, in, in my, my right eye, although I didn't know it at the time because it took a while before that sight came back and had to enucleate the left eye which I have a, a prosthesis in there now. Well, there I was crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun. Exactly all the fun. shit I was wearing. So there I was. I was over the North Atlantic. We were flying from Milton Hall, England, up to Keflavik, Iceland. And we're about 200 miles outside of Keflavik. And we get this call on guard, and it's like this. Marine tanker, marine tanker on guard, spade one six, how copy. And everyone's up there just jaw-jacking, talking. As they continue talking, the FO, co-pilot, yeah. I'd gotten out of the seat. The AC had gotten back in. Aircraft commander had gotten back in the left seat. I'd been riding in the left seat. He was back sleeping. He comes up, taps me on the shoulder, says, hey, uh, get out of the seat. And I'm like, yes, sir. So I get out. My buddy, let's just call him Tony, is sitting in the right seat. And the guy goes, Marine tanker, Marine tanker, on guard, spade 1-6, how copy? And everyone's still talking. Tony goes, shh, shh, hey, did you guys hear that? Hear what? And everyone got kind of quiet for a second. And you hear, Marine tanker, Marine tanker, on guard, spade 1-6, how copy? And Tony jumps on the radio and goes, hey, spade 1-6, you got Otis 2-3, go ahead. And, and Bernie, the aircraft commander, turns to me and goes or turns to him and says i i i got this i i got this don't don't worry about it hold on a second hey uh, spade one six come up three four three point two whatever it's switch and so he switches freak and, and uh, he goes hey spade one six you got a uh, otis two three what can we do for you and the guy's like oh my god are we so glad to see you we're up here we're f14 we're on cap and we lost our ins is dumped and we need a DF steer back to Keflavik. And can you guys spare some gas? We're like, what? And 
Anyway, he turns around, looks at Navigator. Hey, how far do we have to go? How much gas can we give? And so he comes up with the number and the engineer, everyone's kind of getting together, doing their stuff. Engineer leans over and he goes, hey, sir, I hate to tell you, but the number number two basket is is the helo basket. And the number one basket is written up as bad. And he goes, well, this is an emergency situation. This guy needs gas, so we'll just give it a try. And he goes, you know, they figure out how much gas we can push. And they call him up and they tell him, come up on, you know, left stabilized. And the engineer gets to work and he starts putting the hose out and the airplane yaws to the left as the single hose comes out. You got that 27-inch diameter basket. 85-foot hose, and it kind of pulls the airplane to the left. Well, I'm sitting there, and I've got, I'm a single lieutenant back in the 90s, and I had bought a Slim Cam VHS recorder, and I had taken the headsets and reversed them as, like, microphones up into my headset so I can record the conversations going on, the ICS and the radios. Well, as I'm filming this, I'm really excited. I'm getting, like... Bringing the news for I'm going to be on the news when I right. sell this thing. Film at eleven, <laughs> yeah, film at eleven exactly. <laughs> Marine tanker saves this Navy F-14 that was out there. So as I'm filming this and I'm filming Tony's talking the guy through. Hey, call left stabilized, Roger. Okay, cleared to plug. And the guy plugs and the airplane moves a little bit. It was like okay. Well, I pause for a second and I go look out the left window by the galley. And I don't see a hose out. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I come back and turn the film back on. And I look at the engineer and I go, there's no hose. What the hell? And he just looks at me and says, shh. (laughs) And so I'm like, okay, something's going on. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to continue filming. And and I'm in on the joke now. (laughs) All of a sudden, all of a sudden you hear... The guy in the back, the Lance Corporal sitting on the crew seat looking out the paratroop door, and he goes like, hey, sir, this thing's spitting a lot of fuel. They got a bad plug. And the engineer says, hey, sir, I, I told you that plug's shitty. Uh, it was written up. And he goes, yeah. So so Bernie gets on there, and he's got this real heavy accent, and he's like, hey, spade 1-6, pull out, and we'll try to readjust the holes and try it again. And so the guy's like, roger that. Well. As he unplugs, he goes, I'm plugging. All of a sudden, the guy in the back goes, holy shit, sir. It is spewing a ton of gas right down that guy's intake. And then, <laughs> then you hear the F-14 pilot go, made it, made it, made it. we're on fire. We're on fire. Eject, no. eject, eject. And Tony's in the right seat, and his eyes are about this big. Bernie looks to the left pulls his glasses off, looks out, looks back, looks back out, and goes, holy shit, mark this position, mark this position. And the navigator's doing his stuff, and the loadmaster, hey, get on the radio, call Kefelvik on the HF, tell him that that F-14 just went down, blah, 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 blah. And the guy's, like, trying to call Kefelvik on the HF, and we're doing a turn, we're starting to turn. Well, there was a cloud deck maybe 1,000, 2,000 feet below us, and he goes, hey, where'd he go? Oh, that F-14 went through the cloud deck, sir. It was like, holy shit. So we spin it around, and you can't see anything. There's no smoke, no jet, nothing. And we're coming around, and we're doing our stuff. And so we start talking about what can we do for these guys. 
we could throw the rafts out. If we got down low enough over the water, we could open up the ramp and tail and throw the seven-man raft out because they're over the North Atlantic, and it's cold. You know, there's no way these dudes would last more than 15 minutes, even in the poopy suits. And as we're sitting there flying along, all of a sudden the oh, ELT boy. goes off. And you hear you hear the ELT going off. It's like, yeah. holy shit, these guys, these guys are in the water now, you know, because it's salt activated, salt water activated. And now we're talking about, okay, how much gas do we have? And how low is this cloud deck? I mean, can we descend not knowing altimeter and how, how long before you could impact the water? I mean, there were a lot of what ifs. So we're going through all the scenarios. And finally, Bernie, Bernie looks at everyone and goes, guys, and he's just dead serious. He says, look, uh, we got an issue here. We gave these guys gas on a bad hose, right? So now when we get back, we're going to get fee-nabbed. They're going to take our wings away. Now, I've been flying for a long time. I'm a passed over major. It doesn't matter to me. But he looked at Tony and he goes, you and Taco, you guys, you're brand new lieutenants in the fleet. You guys, you're, you're never going to fly again. You're going to go be a comm officer or something. You know, just, I, I, I don't know. I just don't know. And everyone got kind of silence. And the warrant officer navigator who was an instructor for the young guy, he comes on the ICS and goes, what are you suggesting, sir? And Bernie goes, you know what? I hate to say it. Fuck them. They were going to die anyway. <laughs> and everyone's eyes kind of got big. And he goes, I'm, t- I'm telling you, these guys were going to lose, you know, run out of gas. They were going to crash out in the middle of North Atlantic. They'd freeze their balls off and die of exposure. So, you know, why should we lose our careers over a couple jet, yeah, fuck those those guys. jet guys? Fuck them. <laughs> fuck those guys. And so... So it goes through the crew, right? There's there's about 12 of us because this is a training flight. And it, he goes through the crew from the lowest Lance Corporal up to finally the two lieutenants and, and the captain. And he goes, we're taking a vote, all right? We'll take a vote on this. And everyone has to be in agreement. We have to be in 100% agreement. If there's one guy that says, I don't agree with this, then you know what? We'll go to Keflavik and we'll fess up. And we'll take our, our punishment. But otherwise, you know, it's going to be, we'll just say it never happened. <laughs> and somebody gets on the radio. I think it was the loadmaster's like, sir, you know, we're going to be up there for two weeks. That's going to be really tough to read that in the uh, base newspaper. And the, and the wife and the kids don't know what happened to the, their spouse. And they just disappeared over the North Atlantic. And he goes, it's like freaking UFOs, boys. Shit happens all the time. I mean, those guys just disappear. People disappear all the time. And in South America, you don't know where they go. They just disappear. And, and so it gets up, you know, Lance Corporal Smuckatelli. I say, we go on, sir. Lance Corporal Smith, sir, press on. Corporal, press on, sir. Sergeant butthole press on sir staff sergeant butthole press on sir and it gets all the way up and he goes taco and i'm like sir this is this is a really hard decision that you're putting on us as final he goes well we're officers we we lead the pack so what is your what is your decision and i said yeah press on and so he looks at tony and he goes tony what about you and tony Tony, you got to understand, is this big dude from Iowa. I mean, huge guy. Nationally ranked kickboxer. 
And Tony <laughs> looks at him, and I mean, there are daggers in his eyes, right? And he looks at me like, you spineless son of a bitch. And, and he just is so mad. And he looks at me like, it was, it was like, come on, man, help me. And I, I just looked at him and I go, <laughs> you get, you're so giving Tony the signal, goes, press on. Press on. And, and Tony just crosses his arm. He doesn't look at him. He looks straight ahead out of the cockpit, and he just goes. <laughs> so on we which, go, right? Which, it, for the and listeners, it's, it's it's he's given the straight. He's given the press ahead signal, straight ahead. Yeah, I'm giving straight ahead. Keep going. And Tony is sitting there, and he's steaming, and the entire crew is quiet. There's not a a, a word spoken. And Bernie looks over and goes, <laughs> "You know what, Tony? I can sense a little tension." Why don't you get out of the seat and put Taco in the seat? And Tony undoes the uh, release and the seat slams back. And as he's about to get out, Bertie <laughs> reaches over and grabs him and goes, Tony, welcome to Herx. That was just a drill. There was no F-14. And he's like, what? What? And, and everyone's like, congrats, man. They're all patting him on the back. And, then, you know, he's, think, he's thinking... They're lying to me, man. They're trying to get me to, you know, feel better about it. And then they're just like, no, no, dude, uh, you, we do this to every nugget. You just happened to be in the seat. Mitch was in the left. You were in the right. You had to bite the bullet. Sorry about that. And then he goes, dude, it sounded so real. And then all of a sudden you hear the guy in the back puts his oxygen mask on and goes, hey, uh, Marine tanker, this is paid one six. Hey, do you think you could send some pizzas down here? It's kind of cold, you know. And so we start laughing. He goes, but what about the ELT? Well, they took an ELT out of the uh, May West. Survival and they, radio? They put oh, it in test put mode, survival radio, ah. and they hit it. And that's what gave oh, off over the radio. Gosh. Sticking here on that the guard frequency awesome. of the oh, locator. My God. So, oh. And that is how all great aviation tales begin. And in this case, ends practical oh, joke. No, no, no. Played on the first officer. Oh, even better. Okay. Hold, hold on. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Hey, everybody. Repeat here. We have with us a special guest tonight. We got to tell you who we don't No one even knows who you are yet. So repeat here. Coming to you from New Hampshire. Well, co-host yeah, Fig. out here in Kearney, Missouri for a couple more days. It is our pleasure to introduce to you Taco. And that is a great story, Taco. Finish the story, bro. <laughs> That's awesome. Finish it, man. It gets better. Well, How does it get better? It gets That's better awesome. Because Tony goes, you know, at first I thought you guys were just screwing with me. You know, that I thought you're screwing with me. This really did happen. You're trying to assuage my feelings or whatever. And he goes, oh, no, no. Let me tell you about old Harry Larry. Larry runs into the FDO, SDO office there in Keflavik when we got there. And he runs in and goes, hey, you guys, I have the coordinates where this F-14 crashed. You got to go out and save no. them, blah, blah, blah. And, and, the, and the SDO looks at him and says, well, I'm sorry, say again, sir. And he goes, this F-14 was trying to refuel off of us, and it blew up over the ocean. And the guy's ejected and all this. And Bernie happened to be the AC, and he's walking up, and he goes, don't worry, boys. We got him. It's okay. He it." And the and the guy behind the desk is like, what? sir, we don't have any F-14 station in Keflavik. You don't? No, we have F-15 Eagles and we got uh, P-3s. <laughs> and he's like, were they off a carrier? No, sir, there's no carriers around here. Yeah. And no P-3s and 15s <laughs> off carrier anyway. But, you know, that's <laughs> that is a, that is a great yeah, story. And, and with, I mean, you know, I, I thought we had uh, some good practical jokes <sighs> on lock. Those guys got it on lock. 
I was crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fond of all the shit I was wearing. I accidentally okay. got to meet JFK, and he, he oh, kept, the lighter. He kept the lighter that belonged to me. That's yes, right. and oh, please tell that story. That's the awesome. first admiral I worked for was interesting guy, but anyway, he was charged with organizing what they called the presidential demo or precis demo. And Kennedy wanted to come out and spend the night aboard a carrier. It would have been the first time that a president had spent the night on a man of war. So, and you can imagine the total ass sleeping contest that that the president now, you know, every nook and cranny was spit polished on an aircraft. You had secret (laughs) service guys in there, you know, incognito and, all that sort of stuff. And I had to keep track of all this stuff because the Admiral said, you're going to be my orderly on the day of the demo. And and we practiced for a month. The Lord only knows how much money we spent practicing for that right. demonstration. Now, all uh, the aircraft were doing flybys and demonstrating, dropping weapons and strafing. Firing real and, missiles, right. you know, everything else. It was just <laughs> extensive. And finally, the day of the demo came. In fact, one of the funniest sides was he had a back problem, of course. I think that's pretty well documented. So they were going to put a rocking chair inside the captain's cabin because he was <laughs> going to spend the night in the captain's cabin. And they had a duplicate built of the one that was in the White House. And they got out there and it wouldn't fit through the hatch, through the opening <laughs> into the captain's cabin. So they got a hold of the carpenter and flew him out. And he disassembled the chair enough that they could get it through the hatch and get it in there and reassemble the whole thing. I, I mean, it's just to that level of detail. And so the so they either broke the broke it or left the rocking chair on that on that carrier to the day. No, no, to my knowledge, it's still on the USS Kitty Hawk CVA. <laughs> yep. I don't think they ever took it out of the captain's cabin. Oh, um, that's that's great. And I don't know if the Kitty Hawk's a fishing reef now or not, but if it is, I bet you that chair is still in that cabin. <laughs> yeah. Is she? Uh, is she the one in Philadelphia Harbor? I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. All right. I think you remember? I'm going to have to do some homework on that. That's Stand by, that, I'll tell uh, you. Yeah, because we had a, we had another gent on OB, and he was said he could see the carrier from his office, but I don't hmm. remember if that was the Kennedy or the Kitty Hawk. I think yeah, it was the Kitty I Hawk. have no idea. I know the Ariskanes a fishing reef. That was the first carrier I was all, took a cruise on. Yes, she is. I want to dive her off of Pensacola. Yeah. Well, I live, if you do dive it, right out just inside the port gun tub, is a very mm-hmm. small compartment. And that's where I live for eight months. <laughs> nice. If I do it, I'll take some pictures and send it. That'd be you. great. I'd love that. I'd yeah. love that. Yeah. But the, the, the day of the demo, the weather just happened to be perfect off the coast of San Diego. And um, we had never gone through the whole evolution without having some sort of a mess up. And that day, <laughs> nothing went wrong. It was just perfect. The Admiral ask the president if he could have a cocktail party for the the president's guests, his staff, and so on and so forth. And the president said, yeah, go ahead. Just kind of, just about like that, you know, very casually. And it was during the cocktail party that, or the dinner after the cocktail party, they had installed three different phones in the Admiral's import cabin. My job during the dinner and everything was to guard those phones. Anyway, the one went off that meant it was a staff call. It was for Mr. Salinger, Pierre Salinger. I think he was the press okay. secretary. And 
came in and took it and made a little motion like he needed something to write on. I gave him a pad and a, a pen and he made a note, folded it up, said, take this to the president, will you? And turned around, went back into the dining room and I took it down. The Secret Service guy outside the door of the captain's import cabin, he was wearing a Marine Corps tie clasp and he saw me coming and I said, I have a message for the president. He just kind of smiled at me and said, why don't you take it to him? I walked in and uh, JFK was laying on the couch, had his leg up, had his jacket off and uh, had an arm kind of up like this over his head. And I, you know, I didn't, you don't get any training in boot camp is how do you address the president, you know, right. or whatever. So, <laughs> That's a little out of your chain of command. Yeah, I mean, he's so, at the top, but <laughs> a little bit out of my chain of command. So, so I said, excuse me, Mr. President, I have a message for you from Mr. Salinger. And he looked up and he, took the paper and read it. And uh, I just stood there and I said, is there any reply? I said, uh, tell him I'll take care of it. How about that? Earlier that day, when we were on the flight deck during the demonstration, <laughs> he smoked those little between the acts cigars. And he said to Admiral Masterson, uh, can I smoke out here? <laughs> and the Admiral looked around, you know, and he said, oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me the nod, and I immediately ran to flight deck control to find one of those ashtrays that cl- clips up on the wall on the bulkhead. Uh-huh. And I got that thing. I ran back, and he and the president broke out his uh, cigars, and then he's fumbling around for a light. And Master didn't didn't have anything on him, so I <laughs> reached in my pocket and I had my my Zippo with the Marine Corps emblem on it that I bought on graduation day from boot camp. I handed it to the admiral. Admiral gave it to the president. President took the thing, lit his cigar. He kind of looked it over like, hmm, and put it in his pocket. And that was it. I never saw it again. So. And then you got, you got a sideways look from the Admiral's aide, yeah. right? He said, yeah, he, he gave you the look of, like, yeah. they just kind of went like that, you know, and for days after that, and I'd be walking around the ship, you know, and I'd see various, but you know, run into various sailors, and and they they get to know who you are because they see you with the admiral, you know, and they would walk up to me and they'd say, "So the son of a bitch stole your lighter, huh?" <laughs> <laughs> so, That's a show title. Oh, hey, that, yeah. that is, yeah. Hey, as a side note, the Kitty Hawk was towed to Brownsville, Texas, on May thirty first, twenty twenty two, to be scrapped. I'll be damned. Yep. She's going to be razor blades. That's sad. Yeah. That's sad to see the great boats. Go I, like I that. love that story about the lighter, though. And so I, I can't remember. It was when you left or when the Admiral left that he gave you the lighter? Yeah, that gave me his lighter? Yeah, yeah with I, the two uh, stars uh, on it. When I left the flag, the Admiral Lynn was uh, Edward Cobb Outlaw. Okay. Who was a really interesting man. And he gave me his uh, zip. He had Zippo lighters made up that had two stars on them and uh, and a little bit of a flag, and he gave me that as a going away present. So so you you got a lot you got a lighter back. It I wasn't, did. It was, it was a couple <laughs> years later, but uh, yeah, yeah, but not not the one you bought for yourself on graduation day from boot camp. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, there I was. Crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun. Of all the shit I was. Uh, do you have you have any good uh, Bagram Bagram stories? Uh, Afghanistan flying mission stories? Because uh, uh, you know, I got I got one. Thank God, this general's retired. 
Awesome. I, I don't know. That sounds good already. I don't know. <laughs> it's gonna I, I like the way I like where this is going already. So I so went there he was. The, in 2011. I, I was assigned to be the squadron commander, and my first thought was, I don't want to be the squadron commander. I just want to be flying guy, right? Yeah, squadron commander has to, has to work and go to meetings and has to set the example. And I'm like, man, I just want to fly. And we got there in July. We were coming home at Thanksgiving. And Wait, uh, what, the, what year is this? 2011. Yeah. So okay, it was. I, yeah, yeah. I left in February of 11. Yeah. So the ten, I got there in July. So we replaced, we had think, Buffalo. That was, that was a busy time. Uh, yes, it was very, yeah. We were flying 10 lines a day with 10 airplanes. Yeah. And the J, the problem with the J model, and we would deploy with Rhode Island, the problem with the J models has composite props. So all those fields in Afghanistan are, you know, it's like the first 600 feet is plank steel plating underneath aggregate. And after that, it's all gravel. So you hit that gravel, one of those little rocks comes up from the nose gear and it goes through the prop and the whole, you know, the whole thing's toast. So now you got to pull the whole prop assembly off. You got to replace one blade. You got to balance. You got to stick it back on. Well, that didn't exist in Afghanistan. That only existed in, in Dallas, uh, in Fort Worth, I think. So anyway, but we, so it, it, it was difficult, but I didn't want to be the squadron commander, but you know, that's the way it goes. So off we go and we get there and I'm replacing this unit. That has been the buffoonery unit of all time. These guys couldn't stop for the lack of for the lack yeah. of a better term. They could not stop stepping on their dicks, right? They had cleats on when they were doing it. It was so bad. So, yeah. so I get there and uh, I meet the outgoing squadron commander, and he's like, Man, this has been the worst deployment of my life. I'm like, what is he? He's telling me all the shit that's going on. And and I just don't think he had a handle on it, but so he introduces me to the new OG and the new wing commander and the the wing commander uh, eventually became a three star in the air force, but he was a former Thunderbird and, and he, he turned out to be a really good guy as long as like all generals, as long as he didn't screw up anyway. But the OG, his call sign was, can I say his call sign? Sure. The call signs are good. Sure. Yeah, his absolutely. call sign was nitro. And I found out later it was cause he was explosive. <laughs> So he's, he's in 06 and he gets this, he gets this gig in Afghanistan. He's a Viper guy. And the great thing about Bagram was they had all those fighters on the Eastern side of the field right? and all the C one thirties on the West side. And if you were not a fighter guy and the OG was a fighter guy, he did not give two shits about you. Right. He's That's like, right. I don't know anything about C one thirties, whatever you just do, whatever you do. <laughs> so, so I'm there like five days and nitro sits me down and chews my ass. And I'm like, I just got I, here. I just got here. <laughs> I don't know what the hell's going on. Right. That's so awesome. he proceeds to tell me all the things that this last unit did. And he's been flying F-16s for 20 years. He doesn't want to have anything to do with C-130. So he just thinks we're all a bunch of guy characters from the show MASH. So I go back and I tell all the guys, I go, look, here's the great part is we're in the cellar. So we got no place to go, but up. So nobody screws up the great. And the great part about the J is it got PIs point of impact drops all within 25 meters of the, of the intended target all the time, which was a perfect bomb drop for us. So it wasn't really a big deal. So anyway, so we've been there. We, we were supposed to be there four months. So I'm there probably I'm there. The, this is the end of the third month. Right. And I, I tried to, the, the first month I didn't fly at all. Because I had so much going on. I had the meetings, I had the wing stand up meeting and all this other stuff. You're trying to figure it out too. You're, You're trying, trying to, to figure it out. In, right? Yeah. 
So now I've been there about three months and I'm kind of like, okay, this is cool. So all the command staff flew on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I'm like, well, fuck it. I'll fly on Tuesdays and Thursdays, right? So all of our airdrops happened first thing in the morning. And we always had two or three lines of airdrops in the morning. And this was like take off at like three in the morning, right? And go out to some uh, fob somewhere and drop right at sunrise because they didn't shoot at you at sunrise because they were asleep. So yeah. anyway, so I, I'm feeling pretty comfortable in my position and I'm having a really good time and I'm flying with a, with another guy, another, the other airplane, we're going to do this information. The other airplane uh, aircraft commander was great. He was, he was pretty much, he was, he was very agreeable to whatever I wanted to do. So <laughs> whether it was a good idea or a bad idea. So anyway, so we take off, we go do this airdrop. It's, it's early in the morning and we're going to come back and we're going to refuel and re and, and put a whole nother airdrop on and go out and do one more airdrop. We'll be done by like 10 o'clock in the morning. So we're coming back and, and, and I was number two. And I said to the guy who was flying the other plane, I go, okay, we're going to come up in formation. We're going to roll into the break and, and then we'll land. Well, I decided that I was pulling my Thunderbird arrival and I was, dude, I was in fingertip, man. I was as tight as you could get in a Herc. And so we come up initial, we roll into the break. I do the break and I land and I park and the soft meets me in the truck. And I'm like, oh, this isn't a good idea. Cause he was one lazy slacker, man. There was no way you were getting out of him, out of getting him out of hops. So if he showed up, I knew things were bad. So he comes out and he goes, Hey, the general saw your formation in your break. He wants to see you in his office right now. And I'm thinking, fuck, I'm going to jail. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, so I get back into ops. I call over to his wing exec and he says, no, sir, he'll talk to you at the wing stand up tonight. I'm like, okay, good. So now I have to sweat all day. I'm like, oh, I'm so screwed. Right. So anyway, so I show up at the, at the wing meeting and I'm standing there and we all get there early, you know, and the, the, the vice wing commander walks in and then the OG walks in and he sees me. He's got this huge smile on his face, right? Now I've been doing whatever this guy says for three months, right? I've been making him look good all this time. So he likes me, right? So, and I, I don't ever tell these guys the bad news. I only give them the good news. I'm like, we're hitting our drops. We're delivering our shit. Why do they need that? Why do they need to know our dirty laundry? Right? So right. he loves me. So he walks up to me. <laughs> He looks right at me and he goes, so I heard you guys were doing your Thunderbird arrival today. And I was like, oh, son of a bitch. I go, well, sir, yeah, I think I took care of it, sir. He's like, okay. He goes, the general wants to talk to you, but uh, not till not till after the meeting. I'm like, okay. So he starts the meeting. The whole thing only lasts like 25 minutes. And the guy down at the end of the, at the end, he is a the Strike Eagle guy. He gets up, he briefs his slide, you know, it takes a minute. He sits down. The F-16 guy gets up. He briefs his slide. I sit down. I get up. I brief my slide which consists of what we did today, what we did yesterday and what we're going to do tomorrow, you know, maintenance, maintenance issues. And do we, and do I have any personnel issues? Nothing, nothing. It's clean. And he, you know, I got to wait for him to go, okay, you can sit down, but he's staring at me and I'm standing there in this room of like 60 people. (laughs) And he looks at me and he goes, Colonel Wilson, I need to talk to you after the meeting. Well, all 60 heads turn right at me. (laughs) Like stuff a bitch. Like, did I forget my trousers? And I sit down and the other guy stands up, gives a slide. He sits down and he looks at me, goes, dude, what did you do? I'm like, I don't want to talk about it right now. So anyway, so the meeting's over. I go and I, I stand to his right and I'm standing at attention. And he looks at me and he goes, come over here and sit down next to me. And I go, yes, sir. I sit down right, right next to him. He goes, what the hell were you guys doing today? Is that normal for C-130 operations? 
Now, dude, I'm telling you, we were like four feet apart in the wingtip. You know, I was we're as gonna, close as you could get. We're going to, we're going to get back to that, but continue. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, sir, normally we do for tactical reasons. We, we, we have used that maneuver in the past and I am lying <laughs> through my fucking teeth. Right. The OG is sitting next to me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get fucking court-martialed. So or I don't want to lose my wings. So, and he looks at me and he goes, listen. He goes, fighter guys, we come up initial, a mile spread apart. So one guy doesn't get hit and roll into the other guy. And he goes, we're rolling a break. And he looks at me, he goes, I don't ever want to see that again. I'm like, yes, sir. I'll take care of it. He goes, and I want you to discipline that, those crews. I'm like, yes, sir. I'll take care of it. <laughs> Not knowing that I'm one of the fucking crews, right? So You are the crew. <laughs> I'm the crew. So I, I Why don't you just up. drop and give him 20 right there? That's what exactly. I want. Right? <laughs> so I stand up. The OG walks me out. He goes, listen, I took care of it for you. It'd be fine. Don't worry about it. He goes, just tell those, tell those fucking bozos who did that. Don't ever do that again. I'm like, yes, sir. No problem. So, <laughs> so long story short, I go back to ops and the Pull whole clown nose out of your pocket. Oh, no kidding. So the whole place is full. All the pilots are in there and I walk in, right? And it's quiet. And they're all looking at me at do what happened. I go, nothing. It was awesome. <laughs> nothing happened. So we had three weeks to go home. And the night we're going to go home, the OG comes out. And he says to me, he's like, I really don't want you guys to go home. You did such a great job. You're a great guy. And by the way, the OG has now retired from the Air Force. He flies for he flies for an airline down in the South, right? So I say to him, as I'm getting on my airplane, I go, sir, do you remember that formation thing we did a long time ago? He goes, yeah. He goes, well, I just wanted to let you know that I was number two in the airplane. And he looks at me and he smiles. He goes, you're a sneaky motherfucker, Wilson. <laughs> He goes, it was great working with you. And I got on the airplane and I flew to Georgia and then I flew, uh, you know, Georgia, the country, and then I flew home. Well, there I was crossing the pond and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun of all the shit I was wearing. Let's be heroes. Let's land in the confined area. Let's go walk around <laughs> a little bit, see if we can find the TSU. So we, we land in the confined area, fairly close to, to the one side of the trees that this thing's at, that we think. Put everything down to flight idle. We friction all the controls down. Because, you know, it was like 20 below out, and we didn't want to stay out a whole long time. And we didn't want to shut the aircraft down and then have it not start back up because it was frozen <laughs> or whatever. So so we go. I think we got about... I think we got about 10 minutes we can go walk around before we got to worry about running out of fuel to get back to, to the main camp. And um, so off we go and we start wandering around. We, we find Wait, wait, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got to interrupt. Did you shut down completely or did no, somebody stay? No. no, we put it, we put it at flight idle. Okay. So, so the aircraft's still running at idle. We got the, we got the collective and the cyclic friction to where they won't move. And both of us get out and we go in and we, okay. we find the tree. Hold we on. Find so tree there's a helicopter like, going. Well, with the I, I know. There's a helicopter. I, I'm doing the same thing you're doing, Reefy. So there's a helicopter with a rotor yeah. spinning and nobody's in it. Nobody's in it. Oh, she's gone. And because we, we don't we, we don't want it to be cold when we get back after we find this thing. Of course right? we don't. Oh, why, uh, yeah. Why would you? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what, what? So... So we go in and we find the tree and we, 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 we start walking down. We slid apart about 30 feet from each other and we're walking down and we kept going, looking around and we're like, 
shit, we can't find it, but we know where it's at now. We'll, we'll send the blue platoon of infantry guys out here and let them freeze their butts off and walk around and, and, and see if they can find it. So we walk back out. And as soon as we get to the edge of the, of the tree line, we look out and there's this big bull moose, 60 inch rack between us and our aircraft. All right. <laughs> well, that was freaking stupid. What are we going to do? Yeah. <laughs> How's that uh, working out for you, smart guys? <laughs> I know. So we're like, well, we don't, we don't have a whole time left before running out of gas, you know? And so I said, well, let's just go around to the other side of the confined area around the tree line. Mr. Moose is, as long as he doesn't see us, he's not going to hear us because, because of the sound of the aircraft. So we walked all the way around and then walked to the aircraft. I, I was in the, I was in the right seat and I climbed over all the controls first. The other guy got in, we buckled in and I said, what do you think? Let's, should, should we just like kind of roll the throttle up normal? Like we normally do, or do we risk over torquing it by cranking it up and getting the hell out of here? And he said, well, let's, let's just roll it up nice and easy. And he goes, I'll, he goes, I'll fly. You're on the right side. You keep, you keep looking at the, at the bull. And if he starts moving toward us, just yell out, yell out to me to crank it. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so we're gradually rolling it up, rolling it up. And I think we're about halfway up to full uh, air, full throttle. And this thing looks, and I don't know if he looked at me, you know, he's, he's like, oh, I'm going to get these guys. And it starts hauling ass toward us. And no. I go, out of here now. <laughs> he, he rolled the rest of it and cranked everything he had. I, I we had to have over torqued it. And I think, you know, we probably missed it by a hundred feet. It seemed a lot closer than that, but was he, was his head down charging at you yeah, guys? Yeah. He, was, yeah, he, he, he did not want us to, to be, Holy uh, shit. Flying so like, squirrel almost hits moose. <laughs> yes. That was Bullwinkle. That was Bullwinkle, by the way. That was from, that was from Sticks. He said yeah, that bull. was definitely Bullwinkle, and he was pissed. Well, there I was, crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun. Of all the shit I was wearing. All that- Two, three, four. young and my daddy said to me well son i want to know what it is you want to be i said i'll never wear a tie but i like the color green i think i'm gonna want to fly the fucking s16 oh well i heard my mama screaming cause i yelled it right out loud so daddy had to wash my mouth i knew that he was proud he gave me a shot there was something in between The lies, all and alcohol The touch of gasoline Box of one Box one When you got nothing left Box two Box two It's that heater in your chest Box three Box three The only friend you'll ever need That cocksucker motherfucker Jeremiah Weed If you try 
the evil, then you drink it all for show. And if you drive the hog, then you gotta drink it slow. And if you drive the viper, then you gotta drink it fast. Cause this ain't a time to loiter, and we ain't got the gas. Now if you drive the stink bug, then drink it on your own. And if you drive the mud hen, then you can't drink it alone. And if you're stuck in UAVs, then my advice to you is to drink the fucking bottle, man. There's nothing left to do. Box one. Box one. When you got nothing left, box two. Box two. It's that heater in your chest. Box three. Box three. The only friend you'll ever need. That cocksucker motherfucker Jeremiah Weed. Greatest fighter pilot that ever I did see Came in one day and took his place at the pisser next to me I knew he was a killer, I could smell it when he peed That fucker drank his coffee with a big old shot of weed Now everyone is curious, they all wanna know Does it make you smarter, will it make your penis grow It won't bring you women, and it won't bring you luck so why do we drink it? Cause it tastes like fuck! Box one! Box one! When you got nothing left, box two! Box two! It's that heater in your chest! Box three! Box three! The only friend you'll ever need! That cocksucker motherfucker Jeremiah Weed! Layman's terms, none of that inside bullshit jargon that nobody understands. Yes, sir. <laughs> Don't forget that report, Bill. Yes, sir. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Kiss my ass. Kiss his ass. Kiss your ass. Happy Hanukkah.